It's 9 o'clock and it's Friday morning. That means it's time for North by Northeast here on 88.9 KETR. Coming up in today's program, Texas ranks second in the nation in reported cases of human trafficking. In the DFW area alone, this criminal activity is estimated to generate almost $100 million annually through the sale of forced labor. Many of the victims are minors forced into sexual service. In this week's broadcast of North by Northeast, we'll hear from Rebecca Jowers. She's director of the Poema Foundation. That's a Rockwall-based organization that's helped trafficking victims restart their lives. We'll also be speaking with Stephanie Dillon. She's a program coordinator at the Poema Foundation. Human trafficking, how people are fighting the perpetrators and helping the victims. That's coming up next on KETR. Good morning and welcome to today's broadcast of North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. I'm your host, Mark Haslett. Thanks for tuning in. We have an important topic today. We're going to be discussing human trafficking, what it is, how to recognize it, how to spot it, and who is helping the victims. We are joined this morning by Rebecca Jowers. She's executive director and founder of the Poema Foundation. That's a Rockwall-based organization that helps trafficking victims, and it helps spread awareness, helping communities address this problem. Also with us this morning is Stephanie Dillon. She is a program coordinator with the Poema Foundation, and thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us here. We're glad to be here. And so uh, we'll begin with Rebecca. And Rebecca, let's hear what they say sometimes is your elevator speech. In other words, when you have to summarize what you do, what your organization does, uh, let's get a brief overview and then we'll get into specifics. And we have a lot to talk about this morning. But first, let's just kind of orient ourselves with what is the Poema Foundation and what do you all do? Yes. Yeah, so the Poema Foundation really began because I learned about this problem of human trafficking and being a former educator. The first thing that we really started doing was educating the public about what trafficking is, how it happens, who are the perpetrators, who are the victims. So we have a, a pretty intensive prevention education program. Second thing we do is a community awareness outreach. And basically this is just going to hotels, truck stops, convenience stores, anywhere throughout the Metroplex and surrounding areas. And we take posters of missing minors. And there's a 1-800 number on there. And we partner with a another organization that are all um, private investigators. And so basically, we have eyes all over the Metroplex looking for these missing kids. That's our outreach program. So we're engaging the community. And we're also looking for missing minors. And we've had, up to date, over 125 girls who have been recovered through this ministry and partnership with for the one so that's our second initiative the third thing we do is then we started having survivors referred to us and it was really difficult to find a place where they could receive long-term trauma-informed care we would put them in a domestic violence shelter and in 90 days they would expect them to be transitioned out because that's really the nature of many shelters it's short term and so we knew the need for Recovery homes was important, so we opened a safe house where we're actually able to provide that long-term trauma-informed care for girls. Let's talk about the criminal activity itself. 
describe what happens, and then we'll get into talking about the victims and how people rebuild their lives once they escape from that situation. But when we're talking about human trafficking, what are we discussing? Because it's a difficult concept for people who are unfamiliar because they don't understand the degree of control under which people can find themselves. We think, well, this is not a third world country. We don't have slavery in the United States. So how is this different from somebody who voluntarily enters into prostitution or something like that. Right. So that's, you know, the whole voluntarily entering to prostitution, that's a whole, you know, crazy idea. And I've rarely found a woman that's not been in a compromised situation. Right. You but know. I, I understand that. Uh, yes. I, I didn't mean right, to suggest right, right. that consent sure, sure, is sure. something that well, uh, exists know, in a situation like that, because when you have prostitution, you don't have consent because there is some sort of external coercion. So, right, right. So yeah, just well, to make and, that clear. And so really with, you know, what we're talking about primarily is sex trafficking, you know, human trafficking also includes labor trafficking, and that's not really an area where we help. But specifically speaking to sex trafficking, what we have found is over and over again, it begins with a relationship where the perpetrator takes his time and builds a relationship and builds trust. And the target is typically young people, 12, 13 years old, that's the average age. And if that's average, that means there's a lot of people younger that are also being targeted um, by these perpetrators. And it, they'll take six months to a year even getting to know them on social media. We call it the honeymoon phase. They, they're building trust. They're telling them that they love them and they're building this in, very um, tight bond. It's called a trauma bond. And then when they get to the point of, hey, will you run away with me? Let's, I'll, you know, we'll have a house and a family. We'll have a great life. And typically if they're preying on someone who's uh, had a lot of different trauma in their life, sexual abuse, or even a divorce, um, sometimes there's that father wound. We have a lot of girls that don't have fathers in their lives. And typically these perpetrators um, are men and they'll step in and try to fill those voids. Uh, but also it's women as well, and it's other young girls. Once a pimp has girls under his control, he uses them to recruit other girls. And so many times we just think of the perpetrators or the, as being men, but it's lots of women and young girls that are under the control of the men that are now recruiting and befriending girls, um, and they end up becoming victimized as well. And so it's really all about relationships. There are what we call... Um, um, gorilla pimps and basically they beat their girls into submission or you hear about the abduction where someone is abducted but typically I don't think I've ever worked with a girl who was actually abducted or kidnapped it's you know 100% of the girls we've helped it's all been through first building a relationship do these where do these relationships get built in other words how do these people meet and Stephanie feel free to chime in as well how, how do these people meet uh, girls is is it just strictly through social media or are there some other other venues um no definitely not just through social media but also um one thing to kind of keep in mind how it works um typically like a girl will run away um and when they're you know not having a great 
home life, they'll run away and they'll go to like a Walmart or something that's open 24 hours. And so a lot of times the pimps will go into these places where they can find girls like gas stations and that sort of thing and then build relationship in that way. Like, hey, what's you, what are you doing? How can I help you? Um, you're out here late, you know, and then that's when they open up. Yeah, my mom, she made me mad and, you know, I just ran away and then that's how... A lot of times it will happen as well. Where do young people go? Say there's a, a conflict or something horrible happening at home. Maybe they're escaping abuse at home. You know, maybe maybe they have a situation at their home that is not sustainable. Uh, and they don't know where to turn for help in that situation, so they run away. So you mentioned Walmart, 24-hour businesses. So where where do people turn up in situations like that, these girls? Well... I've talked to many girls where that's been the situation and they'll go to a McDonald's. They'll go to the dart rail station, the bus station, because it's open 24 hours. And the thing is, these perpetrators are smart. They're really smarter than us. They know exactly where to find the girls. When you've got, I talked to one girl, she was actually from Sudan, um, immigrated here with her family when she was eight years old. Conflict happened when she was 14 or 15. She had several younger siblings. Her parents wanted her to come home after school and babysit the younger siblings because they couldn't afford childcare. And she just wanted to play basketball on the basketball team. And so got in a fight with mom. She had a loving family. It was just a tough situation. She got kicked out of the house within two days of being on the streets of Dallas. You have a 15 year old girl. It's December. It's cold outside. And she's walking the streets going from restaurant to restaurant. She's cold. She's hungry. She's scared. So within 48 hours, typically a, a runaway kid will be approached, approached by a perpetrator because they know where to look for them and they, and they can identify them. And then they step in and they offer food and clothing. Oh, do you need a place to stay? Well, come on, you can stay with me. And then it quickly becomes, oh, well, you want to continue to live here? You need to help me out. Can you just this one time do this thing for me? I have a friend, you know, or it'll be a, a romantic relationship with the perpetrator as well. And, and so that's, that's, they know exactly where to find them. And, Typically, we go to those places as well with our missing kids posters because we know that the areas where they'll be hanging out. So once the perpetrator gains the trust of these girls, then what happens? Um, well, once I think she mentioned just slightly right before um, building a relationship and then just asking them, hey, you know, we're going to be kicked out of our apartment. We have no other means. You know, I've been trying to look for a job and it's just nothing's happening. So I just need to do this this once just so we can pay rent and then we can, and then you'll never have to do it again. And um, it just ends up becoming, you know, a repetition. Right. So it's introduced as this extraordinary circumstance and there's no way out, but then it happens once and then it keeps on happening again. Right. So what event, what is the end game with this situation? What happens to people? What are the various possible outcomes for a girl who's in this situation? And the question that people I'm sure have asked you in the past, it's the same question that people who aren't really familiar with how domestic abuse works ask, which is, why don't you just run away? You know, you ran away once. Why don't you run away again? So how, how does, how does that work? So I'm going to share a little bit about that. And then Stephanie is a survivor, and so she can speak personally um, to her situation. But many of the girls that we've had in our safe house 
have been threatened. And so the definition of human trafficking is controlling a person using force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of exploiting them. And so when you just hear a definition, force, fraud, and coercion, it's pretty mild. But then when you actually hear what that looks like, it really, for me, opened up a whole new understanding of why the survivor doesn't just run away when they have opportunities or possibilities. And so we had a young girl in our safe house from out of state, grew up in the foster system, had a little sister two years younger than her. And basically she was in our safe house about six months and the entire time she ended up staying over a year. But the first six months that she was there, she kept telling me, I've got to get back to work full time soon. This is a little 18 year old girl just two weeks prior had aged out of foster care and was basically on the streets and looking for a place to live. And so she came to our long-term home and, and I, and I said, well, tell me about that. Why, why do you have to get back to work? And she said, well, they're going to kill, they're going to kill my little sister. They're going to kill my little sister. And the reason she believed that is because they had actually out in the Tyler area, I believe had put her in a hole in the ground and kept telling her, you need to do this work, basically have sex with grown men. She was a very young girl at the time. And she was refusing to do it, you know, scared. And of course not wanting to do that. And they actually got another little girl, put her in the hole in the ground with that girl and killed her in front of her and said, that's what we're going to do to your little sister. If you don't get back to work. So I, you know, we never judge a girl on average. We found girls will run back to their perpetrator seven times before they're able to break that trauma bond and believe that, they can be free of that. There's so much control and and that's force, fraud and coercion is ugly. And it could be, I'll kill your mom. It could be, I'll beat you. Um, they're basically beaten into submission or threatened or other people are harmed because of it. They've stolen pets, family pets, um, killed the pet while the girl's on the phone. This was a girl who was trafficked out of her house. Her parents were there, family was there, and she was actually trafficked out of her home, stole the family dog, killed the dog. I mean, this is brutal things, you know, put, cut the dog in pieces, put it in the mailbox, said, I'm going to do that to your little brother, would follow her home from school in a car, hold a gun up and put it down. Every time the phone rang at night, she would get up and go out of fear and trying to protect those that she loves. And so that, it, that's a very, those are very extreme cases and we hear those, but even just like in domestic violence, there is a trauma bond and it's, it's difficult Trauma bonds are quickly formed, but they take a very long time to break. Stephanie, do you want to share a little bit about your experience? Yeah, so I would say definitely it all happened um, in the beginning. You know, I just had abuse from my father and sexually. And so going into high school, you know, really just going into the wrong crowd, um, starting to hang out with people that smoked marijuana and just really starting to numb myself because of the you know, pain I was going through inside. And um, then, you know, meeting a guy that I thought had rescued me from a dangerous situation of somebody that was recently, you know, I was dating that was actually a pimp. And he kind of, my new boyfriend that rescued me, um, I thought, you know, he was, you know, my savior. And so, um, I started trusting him and before I knew it, you know, it was a lot of controlling and just abuse and, um, but I loved him and I thought that, you know, this is what you do when you love somebody and, um, then also being threatened with guns and, 
you know, just beaten if I didn't do it or him going out with other girls and being so young and my mind still developing, you know, um, it's just what I did at that point. Um, and until I realized my worth, she mentioned a really important thing about being her mind, not being developed. So I think as parents and adults, we, our prefrontal cortex fully develops when we're 25 years old and that's our higher reasoning area of the brain where problem solving and higher reasoning takes place. Well, if that doesn't develop till you're 25, and then if you have any type of abuse or trauma when you're young, you're developmentally delayed. So it may not even develop till you're older. We're expecting these young people to make adult fully developed decisions, you know, and they're not capable of doing that. The problem solving, all of that, they're working out of the limbic brain, which the limbic brain is your emotions. So they are so emotion driven in their decision making um, and planning, that is another really complicated problem with getting a kid out of sex trafficking. And the reason it happens is because they're not capable of making those types of decisions or seeing even recognizing danger. And so that's something we as adults have to recognize that when we give an eight-year-old a cell phone, a 10-year-old a cell phone, and I'm not saying don't do that, but what I'm saying is there are perpetrators out there that are preying on them and they don't have the means to be able to recognize even that they're in a dangerous situation. Right. And when you come from a situation where there's abuse and that's all you know, uh, not that every uh, trafficking victim comes from that, but obviously that seems to be the most common situation. A large percentage. Right. So when that's your world and that's what you know, then it doesn't seem so out of the ordinary. It's just kind of like, well, this is familiar. Exactly. We're going to take a short break here. You're listening to North by Northeast on 88.9 KETR in Commerce. In with us this morning, Rebecca Jowers. She's executive director of the Poema Foundation. That's a Rockwall-based organization that helps trafficking victims and also helps spread awareness about this phenomenon. Also, Stephanie Dillon, program coordinator with the Poema Foundation. She's here with us as well this morning. We're going to be back very shortly. We've got a lot more to talk about this morning here on 88.9 KETR in Commerce. On 88.9 KETR in Commerce, this is by North by Northeast, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. We're going to open the phones this morning. We've got a lot more to talk about with Rebecca Jowers, Director of the Poema Foundation, and Stephanie Dillon, Program Coordinator for that organization. It's a Rockwall-based group that helps trafficking survivors, and it also helps raise public awareness about this issue, which is finally getting some attention uh, in media and other conversations in our public dialogue, but it's still a widely misunderstood and sadly underestimated phenomenon. We don't really understand collectively the, uh, not just the uh, uh, horrific aspect of this uh, criminal activity, but also how widespread it is and how very common it is. Uh, We are going to open the phones, so if you'd like to ask questions of our listeners, you can call us at 800-882-5387. That's 800-882-KETR, 1-800-882-5387. We'll give that number again a little bit later here this morning. Uh, Rebecca, we are broadcasting to a rural area. We've got folks listening this morning in Greenville Commerce. Uh, Bonham, Sulphur Springs, Paris, Emory, Royce City, Farmersville, Princeton, uh, places like that. 
And there is a false sense of security that people can have in a rural region. There's this sense that, oh, well, that's a city problem. All those horrible, awful things happen in cities. And that's why we live out here is because we don't want to be around that sort of thing. But it happens here, too. Sadly, it does. In fact, I got a call from a girl who was um, being kept in Princeton in a mobile home park. And I'd worked with her for a couple of couple of years. You know, as we said, you know, she would leave the life, go back, get in a fight with her mom, go back to the life. And she called me one day from she was in Princeton and said, hey, can you come and get me? He's out of town. He's going to be back tomorrow. You need to come now. And so I drove to Princeton, went to this mobile home park. Actually, there was a pit bull in the apartment and she was afraid to leave. And I thought, okay, why did you call me? I drove all the way up here if you're not going to leave. And, and even just problem solving for these kids, I said, well, is there a window? Yes, there's a window. I said, can you climb out the window? And so basically, you know, this is a little rural community. I'd driven through Princeton. There's not much there, but um, this is where the perpetrator was keeping her. Also, I was volunteering at a safe house in the Dallas area. Two girls from Wills Point who had been trafficked were in that recovery program. So it is happening out here in our rural areas as well. Also, anywhere you have a major highway, so I-30, all the hotels along I-30, when when, uh, we talk about trafficking, it doesn't always mean transporting a person from place to place, but often perpetrators will do that. They move the girls out of an area they're familiar with. It's not as easy for them to ask for help but also they're on their way to other locations to traffic them. So we had a girl from Allen, Texas, a 15-year-old girl, who was trafficked to Louisiana, and going out I-30, they were setting up jobs for her at the hotels along the way. So how do you recognize trafficking victims when you're in a place like uh, a gas station, truck stop, uh, or a motel or hotel, other places, a fast food restaurant, these places along highways. Um, how do you recognize when something's wrong? What do you look for? That is an excellent question. And we love to teach our human trafficking 101 where we talk about that and our outreach training. And we will come to you if anybody wants training, if they let us know get a group of people together, we will come and do an in-depth education. But just kind of the cliff note version of that is, Typically, once you learn what to look for, you can't unsee what you see. And we've, especially our hotel outreach, I can't tell you how many people tell me my life has forever changed. I can't believe I never saw this. But basically, you'll have typically an older man or an older woman with younger people. Um, Many times they're not dressed appropriately for the weather. They can have identifying, certain identifying tattoos, if you know what to look for in that. It could be diamonds, dollar signs king you know lots of crowns just different things barcodes they actually will put a barcode on them but other pimps even use their their logo or symbol will be a little rose or a little bluebird and so it's more the behavior that we look at the girl won't make eye contact she doesn't know her surroundings really won't make eye contact the the older person will speak for her whether it's a man or a woman um many times they're malnourished they're controlled through Hey, if you don't make your quota, you're not going to eat today, that type of thing. So those are some of the things that you can look for. Typically, they're going to look scared. Sometimes it's the opposite behavior. No, we think of a victim as as being this timid, shy, controlled person, and it does happen that way. But many times they're over the top aggressive, and there's a lot of anger. And so you just have to learn to look for those things. Tiffany or Stephanie, would you add anything to that based on... um, when we are out many times, we were sitting in a Chick-fil-A one time mm-hmm. having a staff meeting and Stephanie said, 
that's just not right. That's just not right. And she was watching a, a man and a woman have a conversation. And there wasn't a huge age difference, maybe 10 years. Um, but just their behavior and how she was relating to him, she could immediately identify something wasn't right. And we actually were able to engage in conversation with them. And you could tell something was not okay. Yeah, definitely. So as we were sitting there, we just noticed that, you know, she was just looking down. They weren't really talking. Um, she just seemed really shy and just kind of like out of place. And so, um, we just started, I, we actually, she actually ended up speaking to us and, uh, the person we were with told her, complimented her on her eyes and, um, you know, that we just engaged in conversation and right away the guy, you know, answered her question for her and, you know, and we were like, Oh, where do you work? And he, she looks at him like, uh, and he know. looked at her and it was sort of an, I mean, just awkward. Like, how do you explain your work <laughs> to someone, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, um, we were really praying that we'd get an opportunity to get her some information or give her my business card, you know, Hey, you know, well, if we could ever do business together, you know, just some excuse where she mm -hmm. has a means of reaching out at some point, but yeah, it's difficult. So, uh, the situations happen at truck stops, gas stations, motels, Chick-fil-A, uh, uh, yeah, fast food restaurants, uh, are the frontline staff at these businesses trained to recognize these things? And if not, how can we make that happen? That is a great question. So part of our outreach program is taking these posters of missing kids. Sometimes we get an opportunity to talk briefly to them, but sadly the answer is many of them are not trained. And I know that more and more hotels are stepping up, but there are some of the higher end, like the Hilton Hotel, Marriott. I know that they all of their staff is trained in human trafficking and how to identify them. Really, we even need all the way down to the people that are um, helping clean the rooms because many times they're the ones that are seeing things that are happening, not always just checking in the hotel. And so we do need a lot more of that. But some of the lower end motels, they're not getting any training at all. Right. So that's that's a situation where somehow there needs to be resources made available to those businesses and for the people who are in charge at those places, whether it's owners or managers or whoever it happens to be, they need to be aware of the problem and they need to have the incentive because they, you know, it's a private business. They can't be forced. Uh, they have to have their own initiative to where they take responsibility for making sure that that sort of training happens. And uh, and then at those other businesses as well, the the restaurants and gas stations and truck stops, uh, and you have you mentioned the uh, uh, the uh, housekeeping staff uh, at uh, motels, and a lot of those folks uh, don't have a real strong command of English, so maybe you would need uh, some training uh, in uh, in Spanish or whatever language it is is their first language, so they understand what's going on. That's a huge huge uh, undertaking. And, you know, some of this staff actually has recognized. So when we do our hotel outreach, they um, we've we talk to them and we happen to have Spanish speakers, too, that will go out with us. And they'll tell us the pickup truck pulls up. Five girls get out. They go in rooms. We talked to one little maintenance man who was probably in his 70s. He was an elderly man, didn't speak English, was afraid to make a report because, you know, he wasn't in the country legally. 
um, was afraid to reach out to law enforcement, but he did talk to us, gave us the license plate, told us the rooms the girls were going to. So some of the people that don't have training do recognize something's not right. We had another hotel clerk that we went on outreach, just took our poster in, and he said, I don't recognize any of these girls, but three men rented 12 rooms, and they have girls in there right now. We don't know what to do about it. So even though they're recognizing there's a problem, they're not sure what to do once they know there's a problem. So let's go into that question. So say, for example, this weekend I'm going down to Dallas and I come back and it's kind of late and I stop off at one of the gas stations along I-30. I'm in there getting a cup of coffee and I see a guy about my age with a girl who looks like she's in her teens and some of the signs that you mentioned uh, you know, she's not ordering for herself if she's getting food. He's being very controlling, not wanting her to interact with anyone else, making sure that he is always uh, physically near her. And so I'm like, okay, this something is messed up. What What do I do? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would encourage, if you can, always get a physical description you know, just being able to any identifying tattoos or marks. And then if you can get a license plate, that is tremendous help to us. So that particular situation that I told you about at the hotel where the three men went in and rented 12 rooms, we were able to get the license plates of those three men. And we found out that they were all three perpetrators. One was a pimp who had 38 phone numbers associated with his name. 20 of them had sex ads online where they were selling, he was selling girls and two of those men lived in Terrell and one lived in Royce City. And so with that information, we put a police report together, a report together, turn it into the police. But so if you're a person that sees that, you can gather that information. You can email us the information. You can call us. And then if it's a situation where you see a girl and also boys are victims of trafficking as well. We're not always looking for girls. It could be a young boy. So keep that on your radar as well. But I would also suggest calling local law enforcement and just telling them what you see um, because they can get there more quickly. DPS, sheriffs, uh, city police, is, is there a particular agency? You know, if you're in the county like where I am, I would have to call. I live in the county. I'd have to call the sheriff because that's their jurisdiction. And so you need to also be sure that you mention the signs that you know that it's a trafficking situation. Sadly, unless the 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 victim is a minor, the police really can't do anything because once they turn 18 and they're an adult, you have to prove force, fraud, and coercion, and that's just not going to happen you know, right. that quickly in that situation. But again, just for folks who are just tuning in, what is the average age? The average age a child's recruited is 12 or 13 years old. Being an average, I was a math teacher, so <laughs> I know there are a lot of numbers lower than that, a lot younger children that are being trafficked or controlled as well. And right. sadly, also, many times it is even the family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you mentioned earlier that people can be trafficked out of their home. Yes. Yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what, let's kind of, we've got a break coming up. So we are going to have to take a break uh, in just a moment. Uh, Let's go ahead and take that break. When we get back, um, we're going to talk about uh, how the Poema Foundation started and uh, Stephanie, as much as your story, I'm interested in, as much as you feel like sharing, I'd like to learn how you came to be a program coordinator. Yeah, definitely. And so we can talk about how you got into this, 
Rebecca, Stephanie, we can talk about how you got into this work as well. And we can talk specifically about uh, the Poema Foundation's projects. We mentioned them briefly at the top of the hour, but some folks might have just tuned in. So we'll describe what your organization actually does and how people can help if they're interested. There are opportunities for volunteers as well as financial support. All that coming up during this hour of North by Northeast. You are with listener-supported radio for Northeast Texas. This is 88.9 KETR in Commerce. On 88.9 KETR in Commerce, this is North by Northeast. I'm Mark Haslett, your host of this program. And here with us today, Rebecca Jowers and Stephanie Dillon of the Poema Foundation. It's a Rockwall-based organization that helps victims of human trafficking and also helps spread awareness about the phenomenon. We do have the phones open. Uh, We do still have some time for you to visit with our guests. If you'd like to ask any questions you might have, 800-882-5387 is the number to call. That's 800-882-KETR. And we don't have just tons of time left, but we do have time to briefly talk about how you got into this sort of work. So what I'd like to do, Rebecca, let's talk about how this organization came into existence. And then, Stephanie, you can tell us how you came to be a program coordinator for the Poema Foundation. So for me, it was I was in graduate school and went to a breakout session at Dallas Seminary um, where IJM, International Justice Mission, did a talk about human trafficking, showed a video of these little girls getting rescued out of a brothel in Cambodia. And I think a seed was just planted in my heart that day. I'm a mom of four daughters. They were like six, eight, 10 and 12 at the time. And I thought, who's being a voice for these kids? You know, what if that was one of my children? And so a seed was planted that day. And about six years later, when I finished grad school and I was really felt feeling a call to work in this area. And I began looking around for a nonprofit near me that was doing something. And there just wasn't anything around at the time. And this was, you know, back 2006, 2007, when I learned about it. And then there was one nonprofit profit, one nonprofit, but they were about an hour away. And I just knew that wasn't going to be a sustainable way to, to help. And so I began, uh, was asked to start the ministry at our church, basically under the umbrella of child advocacy with um, like pregnancy resource, adoption, foster, so many foster kids are trafficked, and then human trafficking prevention. And so it began as a church ministry. And after really studying the scope of it and how how many victims are in Texas alone, I realized that this is, you know, a gap in coverage was housing. And I thought, you know, I, I, I need to find, I, th- I really had a desire to open a safe house and realized that was bigger project than one church. So stepped out in faith and started a nonprofit to try to raise money and open a safe house. And uh, so that's really how, how Poema got started was just because I couldn't find another team or someone to join that was already doing something. And I didn't want to start an organization, <laughs> but I just, I've, you know, I couldn't ignore the problem anymore and felt like I something needed to be done. So it started with a safe house. It started with first just starting the nonprofit. And I thought, um, honestly, when that pastor asked me to start the ministry at the church, I thought, I really don't know how to do that. But what do I know how to do? Educate. I'm an educator. I've taught math and science at the university level all the way down to teaching fourth grade. And so it began as an education program. And so we started educating people, and then I had this army of volunteers that wanted to do something, but I didn't have a safe house yet to plug them in. We had no money, and of course, it takes a lot of money to run a safe house. Uh, our safe house program was over a hundred thousand dollars for you know one year budget, 
And so uh, we began by educating, had an army of volunteers. One way to plug them in was our community outreach program, which started. We have four to 500 people now serving in that capacity all across the Metroplex. And from there, we started getting girls referred to us. And then in April of 2015, I stepped out in faith to try to raise the money for the house. In June of 2015, a lady donated a home fully paid for, fully furnished. And so 2015 is when our safe house aftercare program began. And so, Stephanie, how how did you end up as a program coordinator? And we were talking uh, during the break, you actually do a little bit more than that. That's just, you know, at a small organization, you do lots. So tell us what you do there, and then you can tell us uh, how you came to be in this job. Yeah, um, I definitely do a lot of roles, but um, I'm learning as I go, and um, I do a little bit of the volunteer coordinating, and um, I work one-on-one with the girls and, you know, being their case manager and helping them get into schooling or counseling, um, equine therapy, um, and just learning different skills. So I get volunteers plugged into our safe house to work one-on-one with the girls and just... uh, educating staff and how to work with the girls and that sort of thing. Yeah. So how did, how did you get started in this work? Um, yeah. So, um, as I mentioned before, I'm, um, a survivor of human trafficking. So I was in, um, human trafficking on and off for 10 years. Um, and I ended up going to a program called teen challenge and God really just, you know, set me free of, my bondage and I ended up, uh, doing an internship with them. And then God put on my heart to go to Bible college. I went to Bible college and ended up meeting my husband who was a missionary in Mexico at the time speaking. And we, he, you know, decided he wanted to go back to school. So we came to Texas, but within those, that time I was also volunteering with various ministries and doing internships that helped women out of sex trafficking. So we'd rescue girls from the streets of Oakland, California, and, um, you know, just always had a heart to help girls out of the same situation that I went through. And then I uh, found Poema through one of my internships here in Texas. So what is it like when you encounter girls, they aren't even young women yet, Uh, What is it like when you encounter girls who are in a situation that was like the one you were in? Um, I think every case is different. And and sometimes it takes a a while for a girl to kind of warm up to you and trust you. So you have to really build that relationship with them. And um, I think definitely being that I'm a survivor, when I feel it's time, I might share with them, you know, that I am a survivor as well. And that kind of opens their mind up to wanting to, you know, really let the, let me into their world. And so it kind of helps them relate. And so that's definitely, um, you know, not that it's a good thing I went through that, but it's definitely a plus that I'm able to, you know, empathize with them. Right. So what do you do on a week to week basis? What, what, what does your day to day job consist of? Yeah. So we actually, um, reopened our safe house, and we're doing transitional living. And so um, I'm always trying to plug in volunteers on a weekly basis to just interact with the girls. Um, they have to have six months of experience in volunteering with us in some sh- 
way, shape, or form. And once they um, are vetted in, then I'm able to plug them in. And so I do a lot of that. I also do a lot of um, case management one-on-one -on -one with the girls, getting them into dentist appointments, counseling, equine. And um, I also help with the admin when help, when it's needed. When we have big events, we just got done with our uh, trauma to tramp dinner. And so... How many uh, full-time and part-time staff do you have, Rebecca? So right now we have four on our staff. It's pretty small, and that's because we changed our model to make it more sustainable and went from being a therapeutic home to a transitional living home. And part of that allows us now, we're working on getting a second safe house, but we'll do it in partnership with Poetic, another nonprofit that are all counselors. They're all art, music, therapists, um, and the girls that are in Poetic, they're age 12 to 24, we're going to open a second safe house in partnership with them. So the staffing cost won't be out, you know, it'll be sustainable for us in that partnership. What's the difference between a uh, transitional home and a therapeutic home? That's an excellent question. So a therapeutic home would take a girl right off of the streets. It's a girl who's really stuck in her trauma still, who has night terrors, who isn't able to sleep at night, has insomnia just has a lot of triggers. They really haven't done the therapeutic work yet to live independently. They need a lot of support. Typically when we were a therapeutic home, the day it's just making it through the day. Sometimes learning life skills. It takes about six months when a girl's off the streets for her central nervous system to kind of come down to equilibrium and for them to even function. Um, so that's what you're doing a lot in, in the, the first year of a girl getting off the street. So that's a therapeutic home. Lots of counseling, art therapy, music therapy, even just learning how to prepare a meal, working on all of that. Um, and then a transitional home is a girl who's been through that type of a program. They're more they're in a more a state where they're able to function more independently. So we have girls in the home now that have been through a year program and now they're wanting to go to school, maybe get their GED or go to college. The girl in our home right now actually has her GED and is going to start college in the fall. We had another girl who is now a senior at uh, UNT getting a degree in behavioral analysis. So it's girls who can function a little more independently and don't need 24-7 staff around them. So uh, we'd like to direct people, if they're interested, to the website, and uh, that's poemafoundation.org, and that's spelled P-O-I-E-M-A foundation.org, all one word. Uh, we'll have a post up later today on KETR.org uh, with a link to that website. Uh, and of course, I'm sure you get asked all the time, where does the name come from? Name comes from Ephesians 2.10. Poema means God's handiwork or God's workmanship. And so we want the victims to know that they are, you know, we're a faith-based organization, that they're made in the image of God. They have value and self-worth, that he loves them. But it also works for our volunteers. We are God's handiwork. So the work that we're doing um, is being the hands and feet of Christ, basically, to care for these survivors. So what do, uh, if, if people are interested in helping, well, what's, uh, what, what are some things they can do as volunteers? So one of the best things they could do right now, which is a low commitment, it's a once a month situation where we go to outreach to the hotels and we are actually looking to start an outreach in Greenville. So they would leave from Greenville and go to the local hotels and businesses taking posters of missing kids. Okay. There is lots of work to be done. Yes. Uh, but a lot of it is being done right now by uh, Rebecca and Stephanie at the Poema Foundation. And you can find more information about their organization online at 
poemafoundation.org, P-O-I-E-M-A, foundation.org, all one word. You've been listening to North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next, it's the Texas Standard, broadcast live from Austin, the national news show of Texas. That's next on KETR. <laughs>